scripture reading this morning is in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Good morning, everybody. Glad you can be with us today. Um, Much of the religious world, uh, the weeks of December prior to to Christmas, at the end of the month, are called Advent, especially in religious traditions that are more uh, liturgical in their their past and their orientation, more high church, some folks call it. Um, The word Advent uh, derives from a, a Latin word that means simply arrival or coming. Anybody arrives, that's their Advent. Anybody comes, shows up, they weren't present, now they're present, that's their their Advent, their coming. And um, so the focus during the season of Advent has traditionally been on waiting, waiting on the coming of the Lord, uh, waiting on God to arrive, waiting on God to come to the rescue finally, to pierce all this world's oppressive darkness with the dawn of God's light. And um, the songs that we, you know, the Bible says a lot about waiting. Uh, you could do a Google search. Look up wait, waiting, wait on the Lord. You're going to have lots and lots and lots of examples. You could argue that it's one of the central things God wants us to do is to wait on Him. Um, the, song, we, the first and last song in Randy's song service today that we've just had were both, I don't know if you noticed or not, based on Isaiah 40. Um, that wasn't, I didn't tell him to do that. I'm not preaching on Isaiah 40 today, but Isaiah 40 is very much about behold your king. Like, check out who God is. Really let that go deep, who he is, and then that will allow you to wait on the Lord, and he'll renew your strength and all that. And that's a, a very common biblical idea. So the Bible uh, says very little uh, about, you know, some of the liturgical, well, actually probably nothing about the liturgical traditions per se of Advent, you know, the candle for this and the candle for that and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I don't even know all that. I'll tell you what the Bible does say a ton about, and that is, that is the principles underlying Advent or, or waiting on the coming of the Lord. Uh, learning how to wait on God expectantly is uh, uh, all over the Bible. Uh, Psalm uh, 27 would be one example that I think captures this uh, very common biblical uh, theme. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? How many of you right now are, are dealing with fear? Maybe it's acute, maybe it's a low-grade kind of anxiety. Fear has many faces. But whom shall I fear, the psalmist asks. The Lord is, is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And then in the very last verse of the psalm, he says this. This is the takeaway from that knowledge. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And so when we talk in the Bible about waiting on God, one thing we need to understand that we're not talking about is just the kind of waiting because you don't have any choice. You know, all of us wait. How many of you love waiting? 
just in general. Isn't it the greatest thing? You ordered, and your order, it's been like, it's been, you realize it's been 87 seconds since I placed my order. I, I'm, you know, consumer is sovereign. I'm about to lose my mind and call your, you know, write a letter to your CEO because it's been 87 seconds. We don't love waiting. Uh, it makes us really frustrated. I'm not talking about the kind of waiting where you're waiting on somebody who's late or you're waiting on your food to get there or you're waiting in line or you're waiting in a traffic jam. None of us have, chooses that kind of waiting. We don't always respond well to it. Um, I, I'm talking about waiting in faith. And that is a choice. Not waiting in, with hand-wringing anxiety. You know, you wish you weren't waiting, but you are. And so you wring your hands and you worry and you circle back and your brain won't shut up. I'm talking about waiting with strength and courage and peace. This idea that we have light in our darkness and that light is the Lord. Well, a key point, a key component in waiting is the, another big biblical idea uh, called hope. And the biblical word hope carries the idea of a confident expectation about the future. It's not just a wish about the future. We use the English word hope that way a lot. I hope so, you know. I, I hope Arkansas has a good season in football. That's not a confident expectation. That's, I, I do, that's a desire I have, but there's almost zero biblical hope like confident expectation. It's at record historic lows. Um, but the biblical idea is different. It's less a wish about the future than it is a disposition about the future. It's this capacity to believe in the coming of something that we can't yet actually see and yet we act as though it's here. Romans 8 is a great uh, uh, you know, sort of expression of what biblical hope is. He says... Now, hope that is seen, if you've realized it already, if it's come to fruition, that's not hope. That's just the thing, right? Hope that is seen isn't hope for who hopes what he sees, if you've got it right there. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So it's two things. You don't have the thing there, but you're acting as if the thing is there because you're waiting for it with expectation, with patience. You know it's coming. There's something certain about it. That light is going to dawn like the sun comes up every morning, even though the darkness at 4 a.m. is really dark. And your life may be really dark right now because of any number of reasons. The things happening to you, the things that you've brought on yourself. And the Bible addresses all of that. How do we have hope? The ability to wait, notice here in Romans 8, 25, is, is connected inextricably with the ability to hope. If you don't have hope, you're not going to be good at waiting. And you won't be good at waiting if you don't have hope. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait. Those two things are intimately connected. And Paul, in the letter to the Romans, not just here in Romans 8, but three times in three key texts in this letter to the Romans, um, he, he deals with this idea of hope. And it culminates with his exhortation that his readers, the Roman Christians, and by extension all uh, who believe in the Word of God and would read the book of Romans as part of the canon of Scripture, we see this exhortation near the end of the letter. May the God of hope, He's a God of hope, may He fill you with all joy and peace and believing and trusting so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. What I want to do today and, and, and next week and then, and then um, 
the week after that, is talk about these three key texts in Romans that, that lead us to uh, have the kind of hope, even in the darkness, even while we're waiting, that we should have. So let's begin this little series that we're going to call Abound in Hope. Abound in Hope. So over the next three uh, uh, lessons, we want to look at this biblical notion of hope as it appears in these three texts uh, in Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, Because the fact is darkness is a part of this world. This world is broken by sin and darkness is part of every human life. Now, maybe if you're 15 and you've led a re- relatively privileged life by virtue of where you've been born and you've been healthy and your family's been healthy, maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about. Darkness is coming. It just is. Suffering, hardship, oppression, uh, loneliness, um, your sin and the consequences thereof, the sins of others and their consequences on you. The world is shot through. Though it is beautiful, though it is a masterpiece, it is a marred masterpiece. And we live in that world. And darkness is very much part of it. But here's what hope is. Hope is to believe in the midst of that darkness. Sometimes against all apparent hope that light is coming. And so today I want to look at the first major instance of hope in, the, in Romans that, ta- that Paul deals with at length. And it comes from Romans chapter 4 and chapter 5. And we're going to call this lesson this morning, the first in this three-part series, The Fundamentals of Hope. I think we learned some basic things about the nuts and bolts of hope and what it looks like when we have hope and how it functions, those sorts of things. What we might call the elements or the fundamentals of hope um, in, in this lesson from Romans 4 and Romans 5. All right? So, here's what we're going to do this morning for a few minutes. We're going to look at the functioning of hope, the fruits of hope, and the foundation of hope. Okay? The functioning of hope, the fruits of hope, and the foundation of hope. And I think all of those um, come out of of this text in Romans 4 and Romans 5. So let's begin by talking about the functioning of hope. And what I mean by that is, I want us to ask the question, what, what is the essential M.O.? right, of, of, of hope. What's its modus operandi? What, what, what does hope do? What does biblical hope do? How does it function? So in other words, what makes hope, hope? All right? And, and we could go on and on and on and you know, triangulate toward an answer. I'm just going to go ahead and give you the answer. Uh, what I see anyway from this text and others is that hope boils down to trusting God. Believing God. All right? We're going to see the word belief and trust a lot. When God says something about you, when God says something about the future, when God says anything, do you believe Him? Or substitute the word, I think it's a better word for our, the way we use words, do you trust Him? We, we often use belief in a kind of more shallow, merely intellectual way. Do you know what I mean? Do you affirm these doctrines? Yes, here are the doctrines. There are five of them. There are 17 of them. There are 40 of them. I affirm them, right? I tell people I believe them. In church, I say I do. And it goes about this deep. It stays up in your head. Anybody know what I'm talking about? 
It, it doesn't go percolate down to your heart. It's not in your members. It's not, it's not really functionally what you believe because in a moment of, of hardship or danger or fear or feeling lonely or whatever, you revert to something else. You're functionally not believing that because it's only head knowledge. And we, can, we often say, I, I believe it, but we don't trust it. Even though biblically, I think trust and belief can each translate the, the words that, you know, the, uh, pistuo and pistis and all these that are the word behind faith and belief. I'm going to use trust a lot today because I think it's a more robust thing. If we trust something, we bank, we're banking on it. And we, we uh, um, order our lives accordingly. Well, what's the basic meaning of, uh, of the word, of the biblical words for hope? The basic meaning is, basic, is confident expectation. Confident expectation. And what provides that confidence? Well, what provides the confidence, if we have hope, biblical hope, is, are the promises of God. Hope is believing and trusting God's promises. Hope is trusting God when He says something about your future, such that you order your present life accordingly. There's, a, there's an inextricable connection between what you believe is coming down the pike, what you believe about the future in your heart of hearts, and how you act and think and feel and what you prioritize in the present. We, we're not people who can, we always say, live in the moment. Well, yeah, in the moment, but your moment is always, in the present is always a function to some extent of what you believe about what's coming. That's why the Bible spends so much time talking about you know, end things, the, the end of the story, the conclusion of the story, the eschatos, the eschatological parts. Why is the Bible, is it wasting time? Live in the moment. No, because your moment right now has a whole lot to do in how you live and think and feel with what you think is going to happen. And that's about hope. Hope connects the future with the present. And how it's supposed to connect it is that we are taking God's word, His promises, His assurances at face value to the extent that they, they shape the way we live now. Our convictions, our affections, our emotions, the way we react to situations and people and crises. My present life is profoundly impacted by, by what I believe about the future. And this is what the text says in Romans 4, that hope meant for a man named Abraham, who's sort of held up in Romans 4 as a kind of paradigm, uh, a father of what hope looks like, what faith looks like, what trust looks like. So let's read here in Romans chapter 4, verses 17 to 20. Remember, Romans 4 and 5 are, are the first major place where Paul deals with this idea of hope. And it's the basis for our, our lesson this morning. So here's what he says. Speaking about Abraham, who, whom you may remember, I hope you do, was the guy that God chose way back in ancient times through whom to bring some promises to pass through Abraham's lineage. And one of those involved the fact that Abraham would be the father of multitudes of people. But it took forever for him to even get an heir. And he tries things on his own, doesn't always trust God in the beginning. And then God asked him to sacrifice the one son that he finally had told him that's going to be the son of promise. That's the one through whom your, 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 your lineage will come. And God told him uh, on one occasion in Genesis 15 that if you look up at the stars and, and, and you count the stars and you see how numberless and uncountable they are, that's how your offspring are going to be. And Abraham's like, really? Well, okay, if you say so. That's kind of what this is talking about. It's alluding back to that. Uh, from Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22, where the promise to Abraham is reiterated over again. Okay. In the presence of the God in whom Abraham believed, Romans 4, 17, 
This God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he, that is Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. They're going to be as numberless as the stars of the heavens. Verse 19, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, his wife's womb. Didn't matter. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. And so we're told in the next little section that we're to emulate this kind of trust that Abraham has. So it's not just he's telling us a history lesson about Abraham. That's an object lesson. That's something that's supposed to inspire us to live accordingly. He says in verse 23 of, of chapter 4, but the words, quote, it was counted to him, which comes from Genesis 15, were not written for his, that is Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him or trust in him who raised Jesus uh, uh, from the dead. Uh, raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So Abraham did this thing. He responded in a way to the promise of God. That when God saw that trust in Abraham, that alone, this is the whole argument of Romans 4, and it spills over into chapter 5 as he applies it to us. It was Abraham's trust in what God said that justified Abraham. That's what it was. I mean, that's the whole point of Romans 4, right? If you've read Romans, you know that. It's very redundant. He says it over and over and over again, several different ways. But then he says, I'm not just talking about Abraham. God counts it as righteousness, justification. You're made right with God and right standing with God for any of us who believe what God has done for us through Jesus. So we're just, we're just heirs of Abraham and the hope that he had and the trust that he had. And, and so that, that's why it's so important for you and I to trust God when he speaks about the future, because here Abraham is he's telling him something about the future. You don't have any children. Abraham says, I got Eliezer of Damascus. He goes, no, no, that's not the one. You're going to have your own son, you and Sarah. But I'm 100. And she's like, I can't say her age because she's a woman, but she's barren, right? So we're, this isn't going to work. And God says, yes, it is. Look at the stars. Now, that doesn't work. But God is the one saying, look at the stars. And your descendants will be as numberless, I promise you, as the stars of heaven. And Abraham believed God. He trusted Him. He's growing in his ability to trust God. Early on, Abraham isn't exactly an exemplar of faith. I know he's called the father of faithful. There's three or four episodes early in his life where he's lying to get out of a pickle. He's coming up with his own fertility clinic. You know, all kinds of things. And finally, he's learning. God in Genesis is so patient with all these patriarchs. None of them is like a real good dude early on. We teach them that way in the back to little kids sometimes, but we're, we're cherry-picking the good stuff because it's awkward. And it's awkward because it's a mirror of real life where you and I live. And what's Abraham got? What feather does he have in his cap? One thing. When God speaks, he says, I, I, I'm going to line up with that. I'm going to trust that. He's not... So, so the future, your future might be uncertain. Maybe you're facing something right now that's worrisome. You don't know how certain things are going to work out. Some jam at work, some relational problem with family members or friends or whatever it is. 
if God has spoken that He's going to take care of you, then that's the truth. And we need to trust Him, as Abraham did, with our future. But we also have to trust God, folks, when He speaks not only to the future, but when He speaks about who we, as human beings, fundamentally are. What is a human being? What's our standing before God? What's our spiritual status before God? And I think we need to trust God when God speaks to that. And that's what the whole Bible is, a gigantic statement about who you are in your various phases, in, uh, in your journey. And we need to read and take seriously what the Bible says about us. And when we do, it becomes very clear that we often vastly underestimate both how huge a problem our sin is and also how powerful a solution God's grace is. We make both of those very small. Why don't we get grace? Because we don't get sin. Sin is only as bright as the darkness backlighting it. Sin is dark. That was an odd. If you diagram that sentence, it would break your pencil. Um, but you see what I'm saying? The solution is brighter the more we understand the darkness behind it. And I think we minimize the, the, horrible, uh, the horror of sin, and we, we vastly minimize how wonderful grace is. A whole lot of what passes for religion throughout the ages down to this very day has given millions and millions of people false hope. Talking about hope, it gives false hope. And it does so by peddling this idea that you and I, that human beings, can be justified. We can be righteous before God, in God's eyes, by our works. By bringing a, a nice performance, a good record, and going, here you go, God. And nobody, nobody is teaching that more loudly and more clearly than a lot of religious groups. That's conventional religion around the world, not just in Christianity. You get what you deserve. It's all about transactional. You've got to appease the God. That's basically paganism. We'll do this thing and then God will be appeased. And we'll win this war. We'll get a good crop or we'll have fertility or whatever it is. It's transactional. It's meritorious. Let me tell you something about Yahweh. That thinking is a pipe dream. That's what it is. It's a fiction. And I don't know how many times the Bible has to explode that myth before we believe it, but it's all over the Bible. Old and New Testament alike. It, 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 it's, it, you know, uh, it appeals. It's, you can sell it to a lot of people. And I'll tell you why. It appeals to our pride. I, we don't want to be beggars. You know, Martin Luther's last words, as I've said before, uh, we are beggars. That's the truth. That's the fundamental thing about human beings. We approach God as beggars. And no, we don't want to be beggars. We don't want to need a handout. In fact, as we all do. And so this idea that we can earn our way or perform our way or obey our way, that that's ultimately what it's about, you need to back up another step because we're dealing with Yahweh whose holiness is unapproachable. Isaiah, when he saw it in Isaiah 6, says, Woe is me, for I am undone. When he hears the seraphim singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He was vaporized nearly. And had God not pardoned him, he would have been vaporized. God is holy. Sin is a huge problem. 
And I think this idea that we, this false hope of, of humans having a transactional relationship with God, though it appeals to human pride, it thinks way too little of God's holiness and it thinks way too highly of our godliness. And God says this transactional view of our relationship with God is this idea that we can, we can merit Him. or, or it's, it's like a, a business transaction. I mean, look at the language here in Romans 4, 2-8. through 8. This is a little bit earlier than the stuff about Abraham's future and whether he would be the father of the, of the promise with the multitudes. Look what it says here. This is talking about Abraham's own justification. Romans 4, verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Right? Good boy, you brought home an A. Oh, you got the promotion. Good girl. You did it. You get to boast. But look what he says. You're not dealing with, with mommy and daddy or your friend, but not before God. You're not boasting before God. Don't bring that up here. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. He trusted God. And that trust, that act of belief, not just head knowledge, but ordering his life accordingly, throwing himself and his future and his well-being completely and wholly without reservation on God. That was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, look at the language here, the language of performance and transaction. To the, just an illustration. To the person who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So that's the problem. A lot of religion says, basically, if you do this and do this and do this, we have the things, they don't. Get our group, we have the right thing, but they're all arguing over who has the things. And they're, they're all basically saying, I'm bringing, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing a good record to God. He's going to give me wages. Now, that's not the, the logic. That's not the... The, the, the currency of, of heaven because it's, it's the currency of conventional you get what you do or do. That's what he's exploding here, right? To the one, verse 5, who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, people who aren't bringing anything. They can't bring anything. They're sinners. Well, that person's faith is counted as righteous. And in case it's not clear, look what he does. He quotes David from Psalm 32. One of the penitential psalms after David has, at least a lot of scholars think, it's not as clear that that's the context as in Psalm 51, but a whole lot of scholars, it sure sounds like it, say that David in Psalm 32 has repented and for, for killing Uriah to cover up stealing Uriah's wife Bathsheba. That's pretty bad. I mean, that's about as bad. It's kind of all the things. He gets him drunk. He, he's disloyal to a soldier. He brings shame on God and God's people. And there's about every kind of sin in that episode you can think of. And look what it says here. This is an example not of, hey, don't behave that way. I mean, we shouldn't behave that way, just to make, state the obvious. But look at the, how it's being used here. He says, this proves that ungodly people can be justified. They can be counted righteous by trusting what God does to forgive the ungodly. And that they shouldn't approach God thinking, I've done all these good things, give me my due, because it's a gift or it's nothing. That's the whole point of Romans 4. And look at the quote here. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness, what's the next phrase say? Apart from works. And he quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are those, David writes, whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, our role is to trust in God saving us. 
And when God says you're a sinner outside of me and before you trust in me, we need to accept what he says. The Bible has an anthropology, a doctrine of humanity. No, that's not the right word, anthropology, but anthropos. There's a a theology about who we are. And what we are before God is a sinner with hopelessness. And what we are after we trust God's saving grace is one of God's people with hope. Think of all the anxiety and insecurity, which are the opposite of hope, that results from functionally distrusting God's promise that His grace justifies you, justifies you even if you're the vilest sinner. But if you turn your whole life over to God in complete trust, He will justify you. That's who He is. that's That's kind of the fundamental point of the gospel. That's the point of Romans 4. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but is due. That's how humans think. That's how religion often thinks. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Because God counts it as righteousness or justification. If God counts it so, it's a done deal. question is, do you believe it? Do I believe it? Not head knowledge. Do I go around all the time feeling like somebody God's going to get? He's going to get me. I know it. He's going to expose me. I know it. Like he came here just to do that. you got a school marm or a policeman in your head, not, not the loving God who is the shepherd of his people. He didn't come all the way down here to bust you. He could have done that anyway. I didn't come for judgment, Jesus wrote, but to save. So do we trust our lives to him? All right. Um, secondly, let's talk about the fruits of hope. The fruits of hope. What I mean by this is what kind of evidence, if there is hope in our lives, if we're people characterized by hope, what does that look like? What fruit does it bear in our life? And you and I know, if you know much about the Bible at all, that that this metaphor of bearing fruits, these sort of botanical or horticultural metaphors are used a lot. Jesus says in the Sermon on on the Mount, by their fruits you will know them. It's not just what people say. You can look at their life. Now, you need a bigger sample. You can jump to conclusions and all that and think, act like you, you're God and you can read their heart. That's not what he's saying. But just, over time, if you watch somebody, a lot about who they really are is borne out by their actions, their responses, their disposition, their emotions, their priorities, what they sacrifice for what. You know, those kinds of things. By their fruit, you will know them. The fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit's in you, fruit is being born. The point of saying something is, you know, you will know it by its fruits. It's a lot like our saying, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, what is it? Well, it's a duck, probably. Or you're at Disney World and it's animatronic or something. But for the most part, we know what that means. If it has the, 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 the sort of qualities of a thing, it's that thing. So our behavior, our attitude, our speech our emotional responses to circumstances, all those things say a lot about what's going on inside us. They're sort of like barometers, gauges that tell the world uh, that that's what's going on inside because here's the fruit. There are various manifestations of hope, various evidences that hope is inside us. But I want you to note that the ones listed here in Romans 4 and 5, that each of these shares a common denominator of, of, of giving a sense, a deep sense of well-being, despite the circumstances around us. If you have hope, 
then there are evidences of that, and those evidences all share the fact that they aren't circumstance dependent. It's not about, is the situation good? There, there's an internal, deep security, sense of well-being. And so I'm going to mention three here that are mentioned in the text, but they all have that as a, a sort of a common denominator. Okay, so um, strength, peace, joy. The evidence that hope is within us, the fruits of hope. So strength or confidence, some of your versions may say. Look at this. Uh, this is the language of strength and its opposite in Romans chapter 4. Speaking of Abraham, he says in verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. So God says, you're going to have this baby. I am pretty much spent. You're going to have this baby. My wife is, you know, Sarah, go over there for a minute. Really old. Um, so, uh, you know, that didn't weaken his faith. Instead, that unbelief did not make him waver, but he grew strong. So instead of weakness facing the circumstances, there's something, and the something here is nothing more than a thus saith the Lord. It's the word of Yahweh. But if you think about it, how powerful is the word of the Lord? How does the Bible open up? Everything that we know is the result of the voice of God. The Lord said, let there be light. The Lord said, the Lord said. So that's kind of everything. And based on nothing more than that, something that would look really slim, Abraham sees as this solid support for his life and his future. And strength comes from that. Right? The strengthening agent was his hope, his confident expectation that God's promises never ever fail. And maybe when he's, uh, you know, it looks like he may be alluding uh, over in verse uh, 17 to uh, another instance in the, the difficult, apparently difficult path of becoming the father of the promise with this multitude, this, this, these descendants who would ultimately bless all the nations of the earth. Because in verse 17 of Romans 4, it looks like what he's talking about is the time when he's asked to sacrifice Isaac. Who was the first one in the line that God said, yeah, that's, that's the line. He's in the line of descendants from whom the promise, through whom the promise will be fulfilled. Right? Look what he says. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. And it says Abraham was in the presence of God in whom he believed. And this God is a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Remember, Hebrews later tells us that, God, that Abraham believed in this moment that God could raise Isaac even from the dead. How many people has God raised from the dead? He calls into existence the things that don't even exist. How difficult is it for Him to get you out of your dark time? Is God up for it or not? And hope is your response to the biblical proposition, the biblical truth that He is very much up for. He gave you the idea that you need these things in the first place. He created you. So, when what we face appears to have no path through the darkness, whether it's your financial situation, your job prospect, your family, your health, your own past failures, we need to know, folks, that if we trust ourselves to God, that the power He will bring to bear on our behalf is that power which spoke the cosmos into existence and which can raise a corpse from the very dead. 
Now, I want to move to chapter 5 real quick, verses 1 and 2, because he begins applying this to us. This is Romans 5, 1 and 2. He says this, Romans 5, 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, he's toggled from Abraham to us back and forth, and now it really begins to focus on the Roman Christians and all subsequent believers. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. This is the second one, strength, then peace. We have peace with God. We're not at enmity with God anymore. We were estranged by virtue of our sin and our rebellion. Now we have peace. And it brings up that whole range of, of ideas associated with the biblical word shalom, which this Greek word here, irene, translates. When, whenever, you know, the Greek translates scriptures like in the Septuagint or something. So it's, ev you know, evoking all this idea. Shalom is much more holistic than just not absence of conflict, absence of war. It means wholeness, completeness, everything in a complex system thriving together. You get that by virtue of the grace in which you stand. Again, not because you bring a, a track record to God that, well, I, gotta, I don't want to, but they earned it. No, that, that, that's stillborn, that idea. Biblically, there's not even a shred of a question about that. If, you wanna, if you're not convinced of that, I'd be happy to sit down and go through. Well, it'll take about a, a three or four weeks because there's an awful lot of text. That's the thing God's trying to explode to tell you how the terms are going to be when you're dealing with a holy God. Um, we stand on grace. And, but, but the point is we stand. We stand in His presence. Remember the, the parable of the, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector? And the Pharisee has this pompous prayer that basically reiterates his performance. He's, he's religion embodied. I do this, I do that, I, do, I have no reason to think he's lying. But he's not the one who goes down to his house justified. Same exact word as in Romans 4 and 5. Made righteous. Who is it? It's a tax collector. The publicly reviled one in religious circles. Who is standing far away and beating his chest in misery. And Jesus said, that, that's all we know about the guy. And he, his prayer, be merciful to me, a sinner. He goes down to his house justified, not the one who brings the track record and wants a transaction. That's peace. Because if we're honest, if we're honest, we know that we don't really bring the kind of track record God wants. And, and, if, and if you're still operating under some version of that delusion that you can and you are, and everybody ought to get their act together and be more like you in your church, then God spare you of that ASAP. Liberate you from that. Liberate me from that. It's a way of life because pride runs deep. And we don't want to be beggars. But thank God, praise God, that when we hold out our hand, He fills it to overflowing. Joy, the third one that I mentioned. We rejoice, Romans 5, 2 says, in our hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. How crazy is that? Rejoice in sufferings? Because we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. There's hope again, and hope does not put us to shame. In other words, you're not going to be left empty-handed. You're not going to be left holding sand. God's promises are bankable. Hope will not put you to shame. In fact, God's love has been poured out into your hearts through the Holy Spirit. He's given you part of Himself to convince you daily. What voices are we listening to? The voices of cynicism and failure? And here we go again. 
or the voice of the Spirit which says, no, He loves you. He's good for it. He's God. So, we'll talk more about that idea of suffering and hope next week, Lord willing. But let me make one point. This is our shortest point, so we should be done here in a minute. The foundation of hope. What, what, where does hope come from? What is it grounded in if we're going to have it? Well, again, the short answer is God's glory. The basis of all hope, biblical hope, is the glory of God. The glory of God. Look at Romans 5.2. He says, through Him... Through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in what? Hope, but the hope of something. A hope which is situated on something. A hope which is in possession of something. A hope which grasps something. Without which we won't really have hope. And that something is the glory of God. And the word glory... Not here because this is a Greek text. It's probably doxa or something like that. But um, the Hebrew word, so this, you know, the, the New Testament written in Greek, but it's always um, evoking themes and words and ideas from the, the Jewish scriptures, the, our Old Testaments. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 to a largely Greek church, our fathers passed through the wilderness and were baptized in the sea. The Jewish fathers are the fathers of all Christians. We're the wild olive grafted onto their. You know, domestic olive, to use Paul's metaphor from later in Romans. So I'm, I'm going to give you the Hebrew word here. And that's the word chabod, glory. It's all over the, your Old Testament. Like 200 times or something like that. I don't remember off the top of my head, but it's something like that. It's one of those everywhere words. Like justice or righteousness. Glory. What's it mean? I think if I said the English word glory to you, what, do you, what comes to mind, anybody? Light. Light. What else? What? Shekinah, but, but I mean out on the street, are people going to say Shekinah? That's a little too knowledgeable for what I'm looking for. Just impressions, Paul. Purity, light. What about pizzazz and dazzle? I think a lot of people say, man, that's a glorious place. Like just, you know, think Baroque France, Versailles, you know, gold gilded, it's sort of over the top, lights going everywhere, there's mirrors, people, it's white. You know, I, I think a lot of people think of glory as sort of, some of the appearances that God had to people, the basic word means heavy. And the etymology of the word, take it back, its root is heaviness. So if you look up this word in a, in a Hebrew lexicon, Old Testament lexicon, you're going to get words like heaviness, weightiness, copiousness, like just God's a lot. You think of the most you can think of, He's way more. He's copious. Ampleness. And then, kind of the, the appearance of it, when it's manifested, you know, in a theophany or something, splendor, beauty, like the most splendid thing, the most beautiful, beauty un, unspeakable, un, uh, you, you can't articulate it, you drop to the ground. But it's, it's everything God is, and kind of, that's probably why the word is just, that, that is used to describe Him is, just he's just substance itself he's weight he's the big thing and that's the basis of hope paul hints at this etymology 
of Kabod over in 2 Corinthians 4.17 when he says that we should be looking at our present afflictions as something that is actually renewing us. It's like a good thing. You're being afflicted. You're being renewed and shaped and honed, fine-tuned. It's preparing us for what he calls, quote, an eternal, anybody remember? Weight of glory. Almost no chance he isn't thinking of the Hebrew word kabod. This is momentary. This is light. The things in this world are, are not that heavy comparatively. God is an eternal weight of glory. Just substantive. And do we get that? Because let me tell you something, until we get that, until we begin to appreciate that and grasp the glory of God, the weightiness of God, the ampleness of God, the splendor of God, the beauty of God, the power of God, we will not have hope. Because you're going to think something else. When it comes down to it and you're in a pickle about your sin, about your job, about your health, about your relationships, about your future, you know what you're going to think has weight? This. This. My connections, you know, my calendar, my phone. You're going to think a thousand other things. You know, exercise. Those are what really are weighty. Those are what deliver you. They're what you ascribe glory to. And that's why in the Old Testament we have so many encouragements to Give God the glory due His name. He's already got it. He is glory. He is weightiness and substance. Power and splendor. But we need to ascribe to the Lord the glory, the chabod, due His name. There's several times in the Psalms where we're told to do that. Because if we don't, it hurts us. He's not just some egotist. I think we think that a lot. Well, He, he gets it and He does it. He's going to nuke us. That's not the point. You think God needs you? Really, that's like you needing that ant you stepped on this morning. What do you have that he needs? He existed before you existed. He's omni-everything, we're omni-nothing. Right? He knows everything, he's omniscient. Sometimes we're like nonscient. We don't know anything, it seems like. Omnipotent? No, I'm right here. I wish I could be 45 places, sometimes I need to be, but nope, I'm in one place. Can't split myself in 37 places, pieces. God, God's everywhere. God's all-powerful. We're not. Why would He need me or you? This is for us. It's good for us when we ascribe to Him the glory, the weight, do His name. That's where hope comes from. It's possible, though, to become blind, folks, to, become, uh, to forget about the, the, the relative weightiness and glory of God and to ascribe more weight and more substance and more power and more beauty to created things, not the Creator including even, and I would say especially, ourselves, that created thing. That's what we're usually focused on, our glory. Are we being esteemed appropriately? Do people give us enough respect? Are we being listened to? Right? Are we being honored? We'll use our strength and our ingenuity and our money and our smarts and our connectedness and our good looks and whatever, our, 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 we become pretty infatuated with our substance. And boy, talk about holding sand. Here's the secret to hope. Here's the ground upon which hope is built. It is to stay focused on the glory of God. Notice this. 
This is so profound to me. Look what it says about Abraham here in Romans chapter 4, verse 20. Why was he able to, to stay strong and to not waver? I mean, he's facing a promise of God that probably is more inconceivable and appears to be more impossible than anything you or I have ever dealt, dealt with. Imagine being 100 years old until you're going to have a baby and the whole world depends upon it. Well, that's an awesome plan. You might as well say you're going to develop wings and fly tomorrow. You know? You're going to become invisible tomorrow. I mean, it's virtually that. And he does not waver. He grows stronger in his faith. Why? How did he grow stronger in his faith, in his trust? He did it as he gave glory to God. What made him strong in his faith and hope is he is doing what the psalm talked about. He is ascribing glory to God. And that's why worship, in the broad sense, not just corporate worship, is one of the most fundamental things we can possibly do. And we're all wired for worship. There's nobody not worshiping something. We just worship things that, you know, are about as transient as a mayfly. You know? Their lifespan is like 12 hours. Give glory to God. Make that a way of life. And your faith, your trust in His promises, and in His love for you, and His power to take care of you, will magnify and multiply continually. And he says the same thing to us. Our hope, when he applies it to us, Abraham first in Romans 5, we rejoice in the hope of what? Not just hope. And hope it turns out. I don't know, but I hope so. No, it's a hope rooted in the glory of God. So folks, we've got to try our best to keep God's glory ever before our eyes. What are we doing? To see God in everything around us, to see His power, to see His grace, His love, His mercies which are new every day. Sometimes we need to slow down. Stop thinking so much about, can I get more of this for the time period or money efficiency? The problem with efficiency is it doesn't have a value system. The Nazis were really efficient. It's just a fraction, this per that. But is the this any good? God can bless us sometimes by ruining our plans if they're going up the wrong tree, marking up the wrong tree, right? So let me just share with you as we close a quote from a book I've been reading called Awe. Little, little book with the title, little title, Awe. It's by Paul David Tripp. He says, it's the worst kind of blindness. The worst kind of blindness. What would that be? It's the physical ability to see without the spiritual ability to really see what you've seen. It's the capacity to look at wonders, things specifically designed to move you and produce in you breathless amazement and not be moved by them anymore. It's the sad state of yawning in the face of glory. We have every reason to be stunned by God's glory, to live in, in life-shaping awe of Him. But at street level, we tend to live as blind amnesiacs, people who can't see and can't remember. And most of us don't even know it. We think that we see quite well, and we think that we remember what is important, but we don't. In our blindness and amnesia, we lose our vertical awe. And so our capacity for awe gets kidnapped by other things. But only when the grander fear of God rules your heart will you be free of all the little fears in life that chip away at your heart. 
When you live in reverential awe of the magnitude of God's power and authority and are stunned by the fact that He exercises His power for His glory and your good, then you can be free from all the anxieties that make you timid and rob you of joy. Thanks a lot for your attention today. That's our sermon. We will talk next week about abounding in hope, part two, which will look particularly at the question of suffering, and the text will be Romans chapter 8. If we can help you in some way, we're going to stand and sing right now, and we invite you to come down and let us know your needs while we all together stand and sing.